Hi, this is Arturis Karnishovas from Denver Nuggets, and you're listening to West Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997. And we are Left Coast Pirates. Merry Christmas, Michael. How you doing today? Tommy, do you believe in Santa Claus? Oh my what goodness, where are we going today? <laughs> what a week for the Pirates, man. I mean, it seemed like their backs were up against the wall. But you know what's funny, though? When I saw the opening line for that Maryland game, I was thinking to myself, how the heck could they only have Maryland as a three-point favorite? I mean, was there like an announcement that Miles Powell was possibly going to play? You know, And then I expected that line to just naturally move. But but it didn't just move. It jumped to seven. And for anyone who bets and understands how point spread works, for a line to move four points, there's got to be like a lot of big action on Maryland at that point. You know, one of my, my Rutgers buddies calls me up and says, this is one of those situations where you would bet the mortgage against Maryland, but you watch, Seton Hall is going to find a way to cover. So cover? Yeah, maybe they, there was a scenario that I could envision Seton Hall covering the line with some pride in front of a large crowd, keep it close enough to take the points. But to actually turn the page at what we recently saw against Iowa State and at Rutgers, to actually make the adjustments we've all been asking for, to find a way to win without their two top leading scorers and to bring a level of intensity, toughness, grit, and determination on defense that we hadn't seen at all season? No way, man. I'll be the first to admit I wasn't a believer. So, I mean, that victory makes it that much sweeter. I mean, like a kid who no longer believes in the miracles of Christmas but finds out Santa is definitely real when he you know, shows up and sees the presents underneath the tree, which, you know, everything that he wanted, you know? So, Tommy, I'll end with this. Did Santa bring you an early Christmas present this year? Michael, anytime I get a two-win week out of the hall, that's a gift for me. And in this case, is there any other real way to explain it? Add the injuries in, add the way they've played against both Iowa State and Rutgers. I don't know if you can explain it in any other way, but possibly thinking the fat man from the North Pole is delivering some gifts. But trying to explain it is what we're going to do. So, this week on the podcast, we recap both the Maryland and the Prairie View games. We'd give a quick review of what the out-of-conference meant, and we preview the Big East Conference with friend of the podcast, J.P. Pelsman. But first, let's start with that Maryland game. Seton Hall 52, Maryland 48. Maryland could just not get 
anything going offensively as it took them until 2.46 remaining in the first half to reach 10 points. The Pirates held Leeds as large as 15 and took a 27-18 advantage into the locker room. A 7-0 run by the Hall early in the second half pushed it back out to 14 at 34-20. The Hall maintained their distance from the Terps until Maryland mounted a late rally and even had a game-tying three-point attempt just missed from Anthony Cowan. But Seton Hall secured the rebound and used free throws to close out the game. All right, some stats from the game. Quincy McKnight, he was just a bulldog. Played 38 minutes, 17 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists, 2 steals, a block, and 2 charges drawn against Cowan. Jared Roden was tough on the boards with 12 rebounds. And Seton Hall had a monstrous 15 blocks on the game. Gill and Obiago with 6 apiece. Anthony Cowan Jr. led Maryland with 16 points and 3 assists but needed three of 14 shooting to do so. He also turned it over a total of five times as well. Jalen Smith and Aaron Wiggins both chipped in with 11 for the Terps. This was definitely a rock fight. Turnovers, Hall 14, Maryland 17. Teams combined to shoot a total of 10 for 41 from three. It just, it wasn't a pretty game, Tommy. No, Mike, but we could take a lot of good things out of this. And you know what? The biggest observation I came up with, Mike? Kevin Willard really made some adjustments. The chiropractor was out in full force. He don't came out. Don't, don't feed into it. Stop. I'm not, I'm not buying a t-shirt. I'm, I'm not, not buying a t-shirt either, man. Rothstein can pound salt. I'm not giving him any of my hard-earned money. But back to the adjustments. Hey, they came out, they played some zone, which was probably effective against a team that doesn't shoot well in Maryland. They ran some offense down low through Gill. They milked the shot clock like we talked about last week to try to limit the offensive possessions and really make it into kind of a rock fight. And they kept the rotations tight, which was surprising for me when four starters had over 33 minutes. Mike, I think coming out and playing zone defense probably was the most important adjustment. But, you know, I don't know that any of the adjustments were the most important thing that Willard did with this team. Whatever he did to get them to come out intense, whether it was that two-and-a-half-hour practice supposedly he held last week or whatnot, they came out in a, in a manner that they haven't come out all year. They came out looking for blood, and they came out ready to play. And that we just haven't seen that this year yet. I, I was going to be shocked if they didn't come out with that type of intensity. I mean, there were still 13,000-plus in the building. Yeah, you're, They were really kind of bitter on social media, kind of pushing back and saying, we're not dead yet. You know, stop jumping off the bandwagon. I felt like they were going to come out with something to prove. Did, did I think they were going to win the game? No, I didn't. But that level of intensity, I kind of expected it, to be honest. The, the bullet point that jumped out the most to me is the fact that he went with a slower tempo. And the way he went with that slower tempo was he told Anthony Nelson, who got the lion's share of the minutes at point guard in his first ever start, that we're not going to run offense or even start running the offense until there was 18 seconds to go in the shot clock. And there were a lot of positions where he still had the ball in his hands with under five to go in the shot clock. And I felt pretty comfortable with what he did at that point. 
didn't you? Def well, we feel comfortable with Anthony Nelson in the game all the time anyway, and he p truly played his best game of the year. Just to go over it, 10 points, 4 assists. He he basically carried the offense in that first half with 7 big points, including a momentum-saving bucket right at halftime, right as the clock was running out. Nice little finger roll into the basket. It, was, it wasn't just that, though. It was the fact that, you know, because he built up that confidence in the game, he hit that huge bucket late to put him up 49-42. And then the, the part of his game where he normally struggles – the defensive side of the floor, he's making that big steal off the inbounds pass after Roden turned the ball over, and it felt like all the momentum was in Maryland's court, you know, having a possession there with a chance to, to tie it. The only thing I would like to see from Nelson is you, you get that steal, you're up by three, it's a one-and-one, -and, -one and you have a chance to ice the game. You, you got to make those free throws there, right? So he, he misses the front end of the one-and-one, -on -one, -one, and Maryland gets one more shot at trying to tie the game, but Overall, I thought Nelson was a revelation in this ballgame. Well, as good as Nelson played, the offense was still very limited, Mike. We only scored 52 points. There were only four fast-break points scored in the entire game, and a lot of guys did a lot of bad shooting. Q led the team in scoring, but his shot was not falling. Roden looked horrendous out there. I know he ended up fi finishing off with a two for five from three, but one of them was a bank shot, which I will not count for him. That's Tommy's rules. That's how it works. Did he call it? Did he, did he call the bank shot? <laughs> no, he, he didn't he, call it. He threw his he, hands he, up he, and he was running backwards uh, going kind of like, oh, okay, it went in. It, if he calls it, it counts. If he doesn't call it, it doesn't count. And to me, if I'm breaking down these 52 points, there's a lot of it doesn't count on here. So I, I don't want to take anything away from the four fast break points because the defense generated those points. But I, we're focusing on like the half-court offense here, right? So take away the four fast break points. Take away Roden's banked in three. And to be honest, they get the last four points from the free throw line. So if you back out all those points, we only generated 41 points in the half court on a total of 63 additional possessions. That's not good efficiency. Right. We, we talk about, you know, net adjusted offensive ratings and Ken Palm and that type of offensive performance is just not something to write home about. And, and you didn't kind of highlight more specifically what the numbers were for Kale Roden and McKnight. Kale two for 10, Roden's three for 10, and McKnight's five for 14. If we lose that game, we are going to town on the shooting performance of those three guys. Without a doubt, but you know what, Mike? You know what won that game? The defense that we've been complaining about. We've been talking about how this team doesn't really play good defense. We came to play this week. I, I never doubted that we could play good defense. We just had not been playing an elite level of defense, considering the fact that we have all the size under the basket that we've been hyping up throughout the entire year. Now, they've had their moments, but they have not had their fingerprints all over a game like they had Thursday night against Maryland, where they completely dominated and utterly took over the entire atmosphere. I mean, 15 blocks is a crazy number. Crazy number. We'll talk about social media and it's part of the game here a little bit later. But I think the guys heard you complaining about those six blocks from Rutgers and said, okay, Mike, you don't think six blocks will work? How about 15, buddy? 
That's not what I was complaining about. I was complaining that the six blocks normally ended up in like the 10th row, where even though it becomes an automatic nomination for the, whoa, did you see that moment? It did not keep the ball in play and give Seton Hall the extra possession. I mean, of the 15 blocks the other night, I felt like they got all of them. But they got for, all of them. Yo, but for the backboard being in the way, one of them would have been put into the 15th row, Michael. But but it just it wasn't just the blocks. I mean, the blocks were impressive. They had 10 steals. Q once again owned Cowan. I mean, this is this is two times in two years that he's taken one of the best point guards in the country, taken him to the woodshed, and completely shut him down. I mean, three of 14 being the focal point of their offense, they, they didn't know what to do. They had no idea what to do to get their offense going. And, and it, wasn't just, it wasn't just Q. He wasn't the only one that was active on defense. I mean, I, it's hard to kind of read a box score because this stat's not there. But I, so I trust Kevin Willard and his stat team when he says that Miles Kale had 19 deflections. Think about that. You know, it, just to get your hand on a ball to get a steal once or twice throughout a game is quite an accomplishment. 19 deflections? I know Seton Hall charts that stat. So, wow, that, that's some active hands. And I thought that contributed to that really intense energy on defense that you were alluding to. Look, let, let, let me put it into perspective. I mean, Maryland is a top 10 team nationally. They might not have the most potent offense in the country, but prior to this game, their previous season low for 59 points, we hold them to 48. They shot 33% in a previous game. We hold them to 27 they had 19 field goals as the low prior to tonight. We held them to 14. 14! They had less field goals made than we had blocked shots in the game. That's ridiculous. Well, maybe Mark Turgeon should have paid attention to the guys that were going to be on the court instead of preparing for Miles Powell when we knew he wasn't coming in. I mean, what was that all about? Mark, pay attention to what the, the task at hand, not some kind of conspiracy theory, buddy. I mean... I I don't want to kind of take all these positive things that we've just kind of highlighted and kind of throw any cold water on the fire. But but can we talk about the fact that even though we got the win, it was a pretty shaky close to the game? We seem to squander these leads away because we kind of play herky-jerky down the line. Example, we're up 12 points against Maryland with six minutes to play. With three minutes to play, we were still up by 10 with two minutes to play, it had been cut down to seven. And again, with the under a minute to play, we were leading 49 to 42, and yet we need to pull out a four-point win. Mike, this could have went wrong. I was having agita, man. I'm, I'm sitting in a bar with a bunch of old Seton Hall buddies. I actually had recently made a trip back to the East Coast that weekend, and I, I just it, I felt it in my bones. It was slipping away. Every time there was a big bucket, Q hits the M1 to push it to 10. I'm like, we got this. No, then everyone chips away again. Nelson hits that shot to push it back to seven with under a minute to play. I'm like, we got this. And then, no, we missed the front end of the one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe that's just the, the history of me being a fan creeping back into my mindset of, uh-oh, how are we going to find a way to blow this one? And it's also a combination of the two games earlier this year. I mean, you had us kind of fall apart down the stretch against Michigan State and Oregon. You had to worry that without two of their best leaders on the floor, was that going to creep into the mindset of the rest of these guys? But they dug down and they pulled it out and it was quite the win that they needed to get. We talked about it earlier before. We, we think that the defense came out strong. We thought the intensity was strong. But what do you think the root cause of the turnaround is? 
Tommy, don't tell me that social media doesn't play a role in all of this, right? I mean, in the post game, Willard allowed of a lot of his players to have the spotlight. I mean, Willard had his standard quote book, but normally he's reserved as to who gets to take the mic. And he let Roden, Gill, and McKnight all kind of step up and, you know, have their opportunity to speak to the media. I'm not going to go through the entire quote, but I'm going to give you a couple, you know, sentences here and there from each guy that, to me, talk about a certain kind of theme that I want to address. So Roden says, a lot of people were doubting us, right? A lot of people were saying our season was going the wrong way. Gill, we knew we had to put our big boy shoes on tonight and show the world just because we lost to Rutgers, that doesn't mean that's the end of it for us. McKnight, we just proved to everybody, just chill. We did a lot of soul searching that last few days. This is a good program win right here. It was tough. We dug down and we got a good program win. No speeches or talks, no players only meetings, nothing like that. I kind of felt like the players were coming out and being like, they heck with all the negative press right now. You guys loved us to start the season. You know, we're going through some adversity. Feels like some guys are jumping off the bandwagon or being overly critical. We got this. Back off. We brought it tonight. It felt like there was a little bit of like, how do I put this? You know, a little edge of what they were trying to say in those postgame quotes. Well, here's what I find interesting, Mike. No one ever says, oh, you're giving me too much love or back up or, you know, it, it's, it's too much. Everybody was hyping this team up to be a generational type team, even us. But when you don't perform, what do you expect? If you're going to take the good and you're going to accept the good, you got to take the bad with it. They didn't play well for a good long stretch. This is the stuff that comes with national exposure. If you want to be the big boy teams and you want to have the national exposures one direction, you're going to have to deal with the negative portion of it and not take it personal. Bingo, you, you nailed it right on the head. We, we had all these expectations coming into the season. You know, we thought we had you know, the opportunity to run the table and possibly stay in the top 10, but there was an unknown. It was still ultimately a lot of, young pieces that had not dealt with the national spotlight to this extent. So if you hit a little bump in the road, we didn't know how they were going to handle that kind of adversity. Man, they got they got thrown a lot of adversity. Not only did they get hit with some tough losses, they got hit with some bad injuries to their best players. So to see the guys like Roden and Nelson and other guys saying, wow, they don't love they don't love you when you're down, not not kind of surprised. I mean you, you kind of have to go through that process of how to handle the media how to handle the adversity and going forward i, I think they're going to become stronger for it i really do a couple more interesting notes that was a good crowd mike there was thirteen thousand plus fans in the stadium there was a lot of talk about a lot of maryland contingent coming up uh watching that game mike can i play devil's advocate i mean i Stephen all was bragging about how they were selling out their three-pack of michigan state villanova and they stuck this maryland game into that three-pack you think there were a lot of people that were like there's no way i'm just going to give up this ticket at this point maryland's still number seven in the country i'm going to go out and enjoy the game i mean if, if this game was stood by itself let's say a month down the road and you have to buy this ticket individually do we still get thirteen thousand? I don't know, man. It, it, it's a tough sell at that point, especially after that Rutgers loss. So I, based on that specifically, because of the negativity after the Rutgers loss, it did feel like a lot of people were jumping off the bandwagon. Us included, if, if we're reading into the undertones of our podcast, but the fact that 13 came out strong, 
people had gripes or not. They came out, cheered them on, and I thought they truly were the sixth man that put them over the top at certain points in that game. Yeah, just, if we jumped off the bandwagon, there would be no podcast anymore, Michael. It's just interesting. For those who did not get to the game, you might sit there and say, you know what, this is still a nationally televised game on FS1. Maybe it garners some national uh, attention. There was a report that came out about the viewership on, on TV. We only got 223,000 eyeballs to watch this game. Conversely, Duke is getting 440,000 viewers against Wofford of all teams. And the NBA just crushed us with almost like a, a 2.78 million viewership in the Lakers Bucks. Yeah, so that, that's, I, think- I, I don't know if that's a fair comparison, Mike. I mean, Duke is what Duke is. It's a big national brand. And you're talking about Lakers Bucks. I believe both of those teams are number one in their respective conferences. I mean, that's going to, you know, you're talking LeBron James versus uh, Giannis. That's going to get eyeballs. So, I mean... Yes, yeah, people dropped off the bandwagon. What are you going to do? Does the viewership change? That's number seven versus number eight. Oh, if we were still up ranked, I yeah. think people start watching that, no doubt. And to me, that goes back to this whole national exposure, the hype, et cetera, et cetera. People want to kind of, oh, we're better now that we don't have the number next to our name. We're, we're probably better suited to be the hunter, not the hunted. I'm, I'm sorry. You want that number next to your name. The way that the the national viewing audience kind of came to the television to watch this game tells you how important that number is, if you ask me. Well, if people weren't tuning in to the Maryland-Seton Hall game, I'd hate to see what the viewership for the next game was, Mike. Seton Hall, 75, Prairie View, 55. Both teams shot a miserable 26% over the first eight minutes, and Seton Hall led 9-4. to four. Prairie View dug in defensively for the rest of the first half and a 23-12 run helped them take a 5-point lead into the locker room. The Pirates were 0-for-7 from 3 and turned it over 11 times in that first half. Prairie View continued to hang tough for the first 8 minutes of the second half until a 21-2 run gave the Hall control of the game and the victory. Casey McKnight once again led Seton Hall in scoring for the second straight game. This time, a total of 25 points on 8 of 16 shooting and a perfect 9 for 9 from the line. Nelson, Roden, and Samuel all had 12 points apiece. Nelson added 7 assists. And Roden and Samuel had 9 and 8 boards, respectively. The Hall still struggled offensively from behind the arc. 2 of 9 from 3 and a total of 15 turnovers to boot. But the defense remained solid. 11 steals and five more blocks while holding Prairie View to 39% from the floor and forcing a total of 22 turnovers. So I was a little disappointed too that they had this emotional letdown for the first half coming off the emotional high and victory in the Maryland game. But are you completely shocked by that though? No, and this is kind of what we do at times. You know, we keep saying our we're best with our backs against the wall, and then all of a sudden when we have a lesser opponent, we play down to that opponent. I, okay. I don't know what it is, man. I mean, I mean, the game to me reinforced that we still have a long way to go offensively. It was a great win against Maryland, but, you know, we, we score 48 points against Rutgers and everybody's crying bloody murder, and then we score 52 points against Maryland and everything's fine now. No, it was a great win, but the fact that the offense had scored less than 30 points in a half 
I think it was like five out of the last six halves dating all the way back to the Iowa State game. And then you have the output that we had against Prairie View, and you're like, oh, there, there are still some red flags here. So we have to continue to move forward and maintain the defensive intensity in order to be successful in the Big East. We have to find ways to get some easier buckets going forward. We just do. And again, we had Willard the chiropractor making interesting moves. We went really small. We had Samuels playing the middle, and then we played basically four ball handlers around them. It was it was interesting concept there. I really wish you would stop kind of feeding into that tagline. It only kind of makes it actually true the more you keep on saying he's the chiropractor. But it drives me nuts because, yes, yes, he made some good adjustments this game. So I give Kevin his due when he actually deserves it. His two big guys, as dominant as they were in the game against Maryland, were not at their best matching up against the smaller athletic front line of Prairie View. So what did he do? He gave Samuel much more run. I mean, Samuel was, he was the only guy to hit a three-pointer out of the two of the 19, but he came up with 12 points. You know, he was a freshman that I can't really expect much from at this point, and they're struggling offensively, and he gave you double-digit points when you needed it most, and he was able to match up against those guys on the defensive end. He got you eight boards too. It was good adjustments. I, I like the fact that he's decided to give the keys to Nelson 100%. I mean, Nelson got 37 minutes in this ballgame, and he had another fantastic ballgame, if you ask me. His seven assists to two turnovers had control of the game. I thought he was the catalyst in the second half, kind of getting the ball to Q in positions where he could go off and, and score his own. And as much as I've beat up on Jared Roden all season, he played a better second half in that game. And a good thing about Jared is he doesn't take his offensive struggles usually back onto the defensive end. He hits the boards hard. He plays defense hard. And that first half, he was still taking poor shots he was taking shots out of position he was taking them out of rhythm and i'm thinking to myself oh we're gonna have another bad game second half he's getting to the rim more he's he's doing a lot more things in the offensive flow i mean here was your issue you didn't like the fact that he's cold from three yet he continues to jab him up right He's shooting 19%, Mike. I'm not defending him here. That, that wasn't the point of the rhetorical question. It, it was the fact that he only took two threes in this game. I He still has to try to get going with that shot. I don't want him to put his three-point game completely in his back pocket and shut it down for the rest of the season. So go ahead. Take one or two. See if you got your rhythm for that night. And if you miss both shots, okay, put it away for that game. If you back out his two three-pointers, he finished five or seven from the floor. He was doing stuff at the rim. Yeah. No, I am I, okay I, if he does that. I, 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 I liked his aggression in that second half. It was lots of good stuff. My, my bigger concern is what she got out of Miles Kale again. I mean, the, the kid went three for eight, 0 for five from three, only played 25 minutes, and he really deserved to play 25 minutes. Are you not concerned about Kale at this point? He's the most curious case, I think, on this team at this point. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's caused the regression. I don't know what's in his head. I, I'm, I'm truly, he's truly a different player than he is, than he was earlier this summer for crying out loud, man. I mean, they sent him and Miles to Peru. You know, I mean, he was part of that Big East contingent that went to, to play for the Team USA. I mean, it, I don't know what's going on here. Where's that development, Michael? 
I, I don't know. So, so I'm going to play a little hypothetical with you. And I'm going to base this hypothetical on the fact that I think Willard has found something. We've been asking him to do it for, for the longest time, but I think he's starting to see the light with letting Nelson play the extended minutes at the point guard spot and letting Q get more offensive involvement at the two, right? And he's going to have to play that theory until Powell comes back. But now he played both of these guys 30-plus in back-to-back games in those roles. If Nelson truly is running the offense smoothly at the point and Q is much more effective playing off the ball, being able to get his own, and then you get Powell back, we have to find, or Willard has to find the right balance amongst those three. And let's not sugarcoat it. Miles is going to play, you know, 35 plus on a given night. And I, and I can't see taking Nelson or Q off the floor either. So where do their minutes come from? It's going to come, it's going to come from Kale, right? And we're already seeing Roden cut into those minutes to begin with. Where is Miles Kale role on this team going forward? You can't have Nelson, Q, and Miles on the court altogether, correct? I mean, you're losing too much on defense there. Who's guarding that, that, that three spot? That's the argument. Could, could I put Nelson at the three? Nel- on Just on the defensive side. I mean, Nelson's 6'4". I know he's not a strong defender, but, I mean, that's the only logical mind that I can see is that Q still covers the point guard, Miles does his thing, and, and Nelson plays over on the small forward. Or you could go zone. What are, what are we, four games out from complaining that Nelson's not playing well enough on defense so that he's not going to get more minutes in general, and now we want him to guard the three? I mean, that's that's odd, man. So, yes, you just mentioned it as I kind of cut you off. Maybe they go to more zone, you know, 3-2 uh, of some sorts, but I don't know, man. It, it's, it's a quandary. I was not expecting Kale to regress i've been touting him no one's a bigger miles kale fan than me i t- i was touting him as the second best player in his team and it just hasn't worked out that way this is the part of this schedule with all the injuries that kind of makes it really interesting to try to figure out yes i agree with most that because of the extended minutes for multiple players, you're going to see guys have the chance to step up and experience, and they might be better off for it as a team down the road that you can put guys in on a given night and have the confidence that they could take the floor and kind of fill in that void if one guy is having an all I don't disagree with anything, but at some point, you have to start defining roles on this team. With all the inconsistency, I think it's hard to kind of figure that out right now. Are we going to get the Obiagu that just dominated the game side-by-side side with Gill against Maryland? Or are we going to kind of see Ike fade to the distance like he has in most other games? Is Samuel going to turn the corner and become an impact freshman? I mean, this is not to pick on Shavar, but Shavar got 48 minutes of extended play in the last two games and didn't score. Some nights we're getting production from guys, and then other nights they completely disappear. So everybody's trying to figure out what their role is going to be in these rotations. And it's going to be really interesting when Sandro and Miles come back, how Willard kind of juggles all the pieces. You want to give him the title of being the chiropractor? He's going to have to earn it. You would have expected by this point in the season that, that those roles were more clearly identified at this point. You would have figured people would have slotted into spots and started playing with a little consistency. I mean, the injuries have caused part of it. 
But we don't know what we're getting from a lot of these guys from night to night, and that's kind of sad. And, and that what that's what makes the offensive side of this conversation is whether you want to take all the positives away from the Maryland win or not, you you still have to sit there and say, I got to go into DePaul to start the Big East play, a team that's going to pack the building, have, can score the basketball. Can we play a game in the 70s? I, I don't know yet. And you're going to have to win some games scoring in the 70s you know, on the road in the Big East, you're not going to hold everybody to sub 55 points per game. You're just not. We're making it sound like we lost these two games. We really didn't. So <laughs> That's what we do. We're, no. we're so, no, we're, we're, you, you know what? Sometimes I wonder if, if half the stupid stuff we're saying, we actually believe. And while we're speaking of stupid stuff, people are saying, did we have any stupid stuff the announcer said this week, Michael? I don't know if it was blatantly stupid, uh, more more nitpicking this time. I mean, Gus Johnson got the call in the Maryland game, and there was a point where he goes, um, I love the way that Willard communicates with his guys. He's so effective. In the back of my head, I'm going, is that when he gives his players the Desi Rodriguez treatment? Is that when he's communicating most effective? Can we not Sorry, ever Tom, I, use... I, 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 couldn't man, I couldn't resist. Can we not use the Desi Rodriguez treatment ever again? I'll give you one that I didn't think was stupid, but I thought it was kind of the lighthearted side. I, I thought it was kind of funny. So I'm going to, I'm going to give Brian Custer his due here. So Roden misses a one one badly uh, in the Prairie View game. And Custer goes, I'm glad the backboard is supported because that was, and he emphatically says a brick. And I just couldn't stop laughing. I really could. It was good stuff. Well, good good thing Brian Custer didn't see Avent shoot one of those free throws because he would have had something to say about that too. Ugh. But you know what? We're going to have a little bit of an argument here, Mike, because I think we've got several things that we could uh, put up for the whoa, did you see that moment this week? You tell me what moment you think uh, deserves that title, and I'll tell you what I think mine is. I thought there was a couple. I was kind of tossing up too. There was the Maryland game. And it was a collective effort. Obiago blocks the ball, uh, the ball emphatically off the backboard. It carries out to Roden, who turns around, outlets it to McKnight for a throwdown dunk, and the crowd goes nuts. It was just a complete play all across, you know, the defensive and offensive side of the, of the floor. Pretty exciting stuff. And in the prayer review, Roden misses a three late, and Samuel goes up with a one-handed put-back dunk. I think I read somewhere where, you know, Samuel has more putback dunks this year than Seton Hall's had in the last 20 years. You know what I find funny? He's got exciting talent. You know what I find funny about both those selections, Mike? That you are not a block and dunk guy. And I'll tell you what my what did you see that moment was. And it's simply Nelson being Nelson. So late in the prayer view game, Pass comes ahead up to Nelson. He takes this kind of momentary fake to make it look like he's going to go for the jumper. The Prairie View guard bites. And in one motion, he goes in, finger finger rolls the layup, and gets the end one and lets out a primal scream like nobody's business. It was like he was announcing his coming out party over here. Look, I, I'll, I'll say this. Whether it's the, the Samuel throwback with the one hand whether it's nelson ju- juking his guy and you know leading a lunge around the deck as as raffery would say it, it excites you as a fan not only as a whoa did you see that moment 
but it once again shows their athletic prowess for what they possibly could be relative to their ceiling. So, but going forward, you know, you can have all the woe that you see that moments that you want, and we still don't know if we're going to get Miles Powell back. At the end of the day, we finish eight and four. Who says my goal was nine and three? Tough schedule, a lot of games on the road, a lot of neutral site, tough tournaments against the top twenty-five. How do you feel about where the eight and four kind of finished out? It's a little disappointing, Mike, without getting into the same things we talked about over the past, you know, four or five weeks. We had opportunities to put big resume builders on our docket. They were there for the taking. It, we, we were up. Now, we could have came back with the same 8-4 and four record had we beaten Oregon and then lost the two following games in the Bahamas. And I think everybody would have still had a better feeling about this out-of-conference schedule. I mean, outside of this last win against Maryland, and I know Willard keeps talking up this uh, St. Louis win that is going to keep getting better and better as the days go on, there's not much of a resume there, man. I completely agree with you, Tommy. When I was there, I was going to say for this segment of the podcast, I was going to highlight missed opportunities as well. And I'm not going to let them off the hook for the missed opportunities against Michigan State and Oregon for what they could have done to build their resume, put them in the winner's bracket of the Bahamas tournament and build their strength of schedule to boot completely falls into that opportunity category. But the perspective of the overall non-conference has to change in light of the injuries. Once we get hit with those two injuries, nobody wants to, you know, be okay with the Iowa State and Rutgers losses. But they were on the road in true hostile road environments. And to actually get a win against Maryland to build a resume. Fine, it's not a sexy win against St. Louis, but it's going to be a win that kind of resonates on the computer rankings. And at the end of the day, hopefully the neutral site Iowa State game will do the same as well. You're just trying to tread water to an extent when you lose the major pieces that they lost. So it could have ended up at a 6-6. Six and six. And This season could essentially really have been win the Big East tournament or don't make the NCAA at all. They put themselves in a situation where I talked to J.P. Pelvin about this. If they do work in the Big East Conference, they still have a shot to get an at-large bid. I know it will bet the bar at the beginning of the season, but if you can get a healthy Sandro back for the end of the season and playing your best basketball going March, I just want to be in the tournament at this point. Don't you? Absolutely. And you beat me to the punch. We're going to talk about the upcoming Big East Conference schedule. And we've got friend of the podcast and sports writer J.P. Pelsman here to talk about what we can expect. And welcome back to Left Coast Pirates Live, J.P. Pelsman. J.P., how are you? Pretty good, guys. Pretty good. So it's been a pretty amazing week for the Pirates, a huge bounce back week, all things considering all the adversity that they had to go through with injuries and poor play. And it's funny how the non-conference quickly changes perception about college basketball landscape from week to week. What do you think, JP, has stood out so far this year? It's just, as you said, it's just, uh, it just changes from week to week. I mean, 
Who would have thought they could uh, beat Maryland? Although uh, when you see the way Mark Turgeon coaches, maybe it's not that surprising. But uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe it was better for them to, after they got over the shock of the Rutgers loss to to go back to being the hunted for a night instead of the hunter. I mean, that's, I guess that's what I would say is uh, maybe maybe it was a shock to the system that Rutgers lost something they needed to uh, something they needed to uh, get past or get through and something that uh, something that could help them in the long run. JP, before we move into Big East play, what other surprises across the landscape of college basketball nationally have you seen, in your opinion? The fact that uh, nobody can uh, no, nobody can hang on to number one. I mean, I think uh, this year really is legit parity instead of uh, the faux Fugazi parity we've seen in other years. Uh, I don't know if that's because of the, the lack of one-and-dones or what we have this year. It just seems like they're are more teams with with deeper rosters and uh, more veteran guys and uh, people are staying around a little bit longer I think if if your program isn't named Duke and there are a lot of teams with injuries and I like it it's I think it's good for the sport I think it gets people talking in December which is something we haven't had in college basketball for a while at least in the Nash in the in the conversation among the landscape uh, I still think obviously the the dumb national Talk shows will still be talking about the NFL and college football playoffs and all that other stuff. But I I do think it's gotten the season off to a good start. I think people are looking at college basketball and talking about it, thinking about it. And that's a good thing to to actually uh, talk about the sport before March. So I'm I'm, uh, happy about that. I'm uh, I'm psyched about it. No, I agree with you. And and watching all these marquee matchups head-to-head based on the conference versus conference challenges and the Feast Week tournaments, you get to kind of see where people kind of shake out early on and Everybody can build their resume. Let, let's talk about building resume and seeing where teams shake out. Based on all this parity, where do you believe the Big East has placed itself amongst the other P5 conferences so far, especially after the strong overall week it just recently had, highlighted by the wins that Villanova, Seton Hall, and St. John's all had against uh, top 25 opponents? <laughs> so, Mike, I will say this, though. You know what I do miss, seriously, since I have this forum here? I actually miss, again, because I'm old, but – but you guys will remember this, is I liked, you mentioned Feast Week. I liked when you this week here or the week that we would have after Christmas, we actually did have some national tournaments, some national intersectional tournaments. Okay, maybe they weren't eight-team tournaments, but there were a few four-team tournaments still left, or at least some national intersectional games, because by then teams were, they had kind of shown who they were, and they got to play one last big team or maybe – two more big games before they got into conference play. Now with all these bloated conferences, you've kind of already played your last big non-conference game before Christmas. So now, you know, you played a lot of your big games before November 30th. That's the only thing I don't like is that we've kind of moved everything up. That's the one thing I don't like. And that's the bloated conferences coming in. But as far as your question, to answer your actual question, which I apologize, I'm just getting to now is your guess is as good as mine. I think Villanova is back. I think the win over Kansas shows that. Providence, I thought they were on the down until, lo and behold, they beat Texas. Now, don't get me wrong, Texas isn't great, but, hey, at least they did it. Butler is Butler. They are what you think they're going to be, which is uh, just a you-know-what in the you-know-what to play. And Creighton, I like Creighton a lot. I think Creighton is on the come. I think Creighton is going to be – I think you're going to be one of the teams to watch this season. I don't know what you guys think. 
I mean, how do you see Creighton? I think Creighton's got a great backcourt. They got four or five guys that can handle the ball at any point comfortably on the floor. I'm, I'm concerned about what they have underneath the rim, to be honest. I know that, but this isn't the old Big East. I mean, you know, it's not all about, you know, it, it's not as much about the big men as, unfortunately, as it used to be. That's that's one thing here. So, uh, yeah, but they always I, had, they always had a big guy that could kind of step out and stretch the floor. They they were big in their true five game. I don't. That's true. Have that guy right now. I, just jumping around the league, but I mean. I do think, and I, I think I—I I don't know if I've ever said this to you guys. I mean, I went to Hofstra, so I'm—I'm I'm, I'm a Jay Wright fanboy, and I do like them a lot. I think, I think you saw that they—they they have the Jay Wright grit back. Not that they ever lost it, but I think last year there was a down year for them. When 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 a Jay Wright team gets pounded in the second round, yes, they've had second round exits. I know sometimes it seems they go like national championship, losing the second round, national championship, losing the second round. Let's face it, that's been the script, but. Not like this. Not to get just blown out. And I think Javon Quinley, let's face it, was a mistake. He wasn't a Jay Wright type of guy. Look, I, I mean, I, I thought they were going to just take longer to find their legs. I mean, the Ohio State loss in their early blowout. Baylor, they looked okay, but it just seemed they were probably going to take a little bit longer to kind of hit their stride. I'm with you. The Kansas kind of narrative changes everything and puts them probably, to me, back to the one or two representation going forward I, I guess from a balance of the conference perspective right now they got nine teams in the top 51 of the net do we see all those teams staying in that top 75 classification throughout the year therefore making almost every road game a quad one opportunity mm, that's a good question I mean I guess let, let's face it I mean I think the question everyone wants to know is, is DePaul the real thing? I mean, that's the question everyone wants to know, and it's easy to say no. I'm not going to sit here and say being Iowa, Minnesota, and Northwestern, North, Northwestern is, the, is being the cream of the big, the big Ten crop, but you know what? It's better than losing to them, which is what the DePaul of the past would have done. Yeah, let's face it. We, we we need to see them do it before we really believe they could do it. But Kevin Willard has had problems, and Seton Hall have had problems there. It's all of a sudden become a house of horrors for Seton Hall going to DePaul. Well, I don't have to remind you guys of 2012, but that's another story. Uh, and no, Jamie Crockett doesn't have any eligibility left. I've used that joke before. But uh, <laughs> but you know what? With maybe not my, no Miles Powell on next uh, next Monday. I mean, and, and DePaul on a roll right now, that game becomes a, a, a lot trickier game than it might have looked like a month ago. Well, following up uh, those thoughts, JP, and with the injuries to Sandro and Miles and all these surprises from some of these teams in the Big East that weren't supposed to be as good as fast, how does that reset the expectations in the conference if the coaches had the chance to revote today? Yeah, well, Seton Hall certainly wouldn't be one. I mean, maybe they'd be three or four. I mean, DePaul would be higher. I don't know exactly where they would be. I don't know where St. John's would be. Providence certainly would be lower. Although, again, does the Texas is the Texas win an outlier? I, I think it is. I'm still not sold on Providence. I don't. I, I think that might have just been a desperation back to the wall. You're at home right before Christmas against a team that, to me, is still offensively challenged in texas it's amazing how the other guys i mean again we i'm, I'm not going to comment on how will wade uh, has his success but i think uh well <laughs> we'll just leave that there it's amazing how the 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 right now the least successful member of the shaka smart coaching tree is shaka smart but uh <laughs> jp's but, got the zingers 
flying left and right today, man. <laughs> but yeah, it would be interesting to see now. I mean, I, we were talking off the air before the, 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 the taping about how, look at Georgetown. I mean, we'll see going forward. And, and obviously Seton Hall is going to see them uh, the first week of Big East play at home. Who knows? Was was the roster uh, <laughs> reconfiguration? Maybe it was the best thing for Mac McClung. I mean, obviously, he's been a different player since that happened. Does that help them going forward? But is the do you think they at least at some point do they crash because they just have too few players playing too too many minutes? See, that was going to be my question to you. It's not just McClung that's been stepping up; it's your seven. He's actually putting in twenty-two a game as well as McClung over this stretch. Great, 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 great call. Great call. And uh, no, he's he's been a, a great grad. Tr- pick up off the grad transfer wire. You know, something I wish, I, I know they didn't, the fact that, that Torian Thompson didn't leave, they didn't have the, 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 the wherewithal to do it, something I wish, I think Seton Hall should have done. I think it would have been a big if they could have picked up a grad transfer shooter, you know, Pat Andrew, anyone, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. And I think also the fact that they can now play McClung off the ball more of the time is, is, is huge. But then speaking of losses, I mean, Marquette, I'm just trying to figure out who the real Marcus Howard is. Is it the guy who dropped 51 on uh, USC, or is it the guy who looked inept against Maryland? And now, I mean, we we saw what Maryland looked like last week. I know they can play some defense, there's no doubt about that. But you look at Howard's game-by-game totals, it's, it looks like, uh, you know, somebody's EKG chart. I mean... He's not consistent. Yeah, he's averaging 25 plus a game, but it's it's all over the map. I mean, that's not going to fly in Biggie's play. He needs to be more consistent. He's a great player, but you know, if teams can uh, shut him down, uh, there's no Hauser anymore to pick up the slack. How about Butler though, JP? I mean, right now they're what top five in the country in the net ranking. They're one of the highest ranked teams in the Big East and the AP polls. I mean, they're they're just winning games. I mean, right now. You know, Baldwin is just putting the team on, on his back and hitting big shots down the stretch. Are they too reliant on his ability to win games at this point, though? A little bit, but you know, but what I'd say about them is, and I, I, I hate to use it, but but really, I mean, I don't know if there's a, a, a Rothsteinism for them, but to me, they're a trip to the dentist. They're just so <laughs> oh, well-drilled, no pun intended, that they run their stuff and they've run it no matter who the coach is. Going back to whoever you'd like to name, probably back to you know what was you know was was Hinkle ever coached there? Maybe in nineteen ten? I don't know. <laughs> you know, just just the way they run their stuff, and they are just going to be so patient, and it, they are just a pain to play. And I know what you're saying, but if you're in the quarterfinals of the Big East and you need that game to to get to the to get that at large bid, boy, I don't know if you want to see that. You don't, I don't know if you want to see Butler. I just think Kamar Baldwin is one of the most underrated players in the country right now, and he's he's not getting Agreed. his due, right? Agreed. You know why? Because because I have to, I think I agree. I think part of it is because they play such a boring style. So JP, who do you think takes the regular season title at this point? Again, I think you got to knock them off their perch. I think uh, I, I I think it shifts back to Villanova right now. Unless it depends on how quickly Miles Powell can we get back. Listen, we, none of us knows. I mean, a concussion is different for everyone. It's not impossible that he could be back for DePaul. Or, and again, I'm not trying to alarm anyone. Or it could be deep into January until we see him again. We don't know. 
We don't know. I mean, I've heard conflicting things, but I've also heard encouraging things. I've heard negative. I've heard positive. We don't know. Here's the thing. If he gets back in a few games, then I think the fact that other guys have had to take on different roles in Mamu's absence, I think it only helps the team. I know that's cliche, but it's true. You've you got to kind of stretch your wings when guys are missing, and I think it, it helps out big time. No, if, it, if, it, if he gets back relatively quickly, I, I think they could still make a run at it. So we had Jerry Carino on the season preview, and we talked about the parity in the conference, and we kind of asked him what he thought the champion's going to end up with record-wise. We believe that there's so much parity in the conference that the champion could come in at 12-6. and six. What do you believe is going to take Villanova to win this conference? I think he's close. I think I think it, I think I still would say thirteen and five, but that's that's about that's close. I still say about thirteen and five. Can you see them dominating the conference, or is the is the conference? I don't see anyone too- dominating this conference. No, it's way too balanced. And like I said, Butler's good. Uh, like I said, I think I, I mean you're right about Creighton inside, but I think they make up for it with the other stuff they do. I think Creighton's going to be good, and they always. I mean, they play Villanova. Usually play Villanova. Uh, they're tough out there when you get them in uh, Omaha. You know, they're very tough out there. I, mean, I like Jay, you know. Uh, we haven't even mentioned my alma mater, St. John's, okay? You know, they got a, a huge win over Arizona the other night, okay? But seriously, Mike Anderson, I mean, again, I know they're not going to make a run, but look at look at the difference coaching makes. I mean, Mike Anderson, who knew you could use more than five players? Who knew? Uh, St. John's has been surprising, I, I, absolutely. I didn't think they'd go on a neutral site. And I mean, they, they pretty much dominated Arizona for much of that yeah, game. Yeah, without Mustafa Harris, I was shocked, right. guys. I was right. shocked. Right. And you know what's funny? It has nothing to do with anything, but it just shows you how, again, how wacky college basketball is and just how strange life is. Uh, I'll give you this, for instance, is that they have a, a guy who was a sit-out transfer. He's not part of the rotation. His name was David Carraher uh, with St. John's, right? And a lot of times you're a sit-out transfer, and the coach the coach who recruited you there leaves for whatever reason. You're in trouble. Well, here's the funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, the program he came from is Houston Baptist. I don't know if you guys know about Houston Baptist. Tell me, in. go they, ahead. They play, they're a low major in the Southland uh, Conference, and they play in an exceedingly, ridiculously fast tempo. And Mullen was the guy who recruited him. So the point is that, like, there was no way Mike Anderson was going to run this guy off when he's a Nolan Richardson disciple. This guy fits right in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he knows what it's like to play that kind of frenetic style. It's just, I'm just funny that he landed in his lap. This is a perfect guy for Mike Anderson's system. That's been I don't my know takeaway what from the entire non-conferences. Though. There's, each team is still kind of identifying who could yep. be an integral part of this roster. Who's in the rotation, right. exactly. Right, right. Who should be in the rotation and who shouldn't, exactly. All right, so so let's shift gears more to Seton Hall specifically at this point. You know, injuries have obviously been a major factor, but it's really only part of the story for Seton Hall and why they kind of have struggled to this 8-4 and out-of-conference record. What is the pulse of the team right now with the injuries after the bounce-back week? Well, what, how are they feeling in the locker room? I think they're feeling really good. I think I, I think you, what the one thing you saw this week was that Quincy McKnight, it, you know, it got overshadowed, I think, last year because obviously you had Miles Powell and, and you had Mike Enzi, who, who was the quiet kind of leader. But make no mistake, Quincy McKnight is a leader in his own right. People respect him, and he's more the – 
the the vocal leader. People respect him a lot, and people like him. I'll never forget, and this says a lot. When uh, when Seton Hall played uh, early in the season last season, they played Sacred Heart, which is where McKnight transferred from. And you saw after the game, he was he he was hugging a bunch of the players, assistant coaches, support staff. So it shows you he, he didn't leave on bad terms, and also how much they respected him. That says a lot, and and I think he's he as much as anyone is 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 a big part of not only on the court but of of helping Willard get everyone to buy in this week and, and let them know no we're not we're not we're not finished here. In fact, the funniest quote this week was after the Maryland game. Uh, it's just funny because he he kind of delivers it in that that foreign kind of islands you know matter of factness uh romaro gill said uh you know you know caribbean kind of matter of factness he said people thought when we lost to Rutgers, that was the end of us so so that that's where i want to go next and i know the generations have changed over the years and now social media is such a more influential part of what we do as a society. And it's also a way that we kind of express ourselves as coaches and players. And what we saw leading up to the Rutgers game, post the Rutgers game, I mean, there were a lot of players that had responses, even Willard in his post game, that talked about fans jumping off the bandwagon and then kind of reaching out and telling fans, yeah, we're not dead yet. You know, is is it a lot of us versus the world type attitude right now? I think a little bit. I think I think – a little bit, but I think also uh, this one I'll agree with. I think Fran Fraschilla of ESPN he tweeted after that game. He called it a culture win, and I think that's the one thing you can really say about Kevin Woods is, and that's with four NCAA tournament appearances in the rearview mirror, four straight. He is building a culture here, and that's what it is. It's a culture that you know you don't you don't uh, just uh, start saying "Woe is me." When uh, when a lot of people start getting hurt, Adam Gase, you don't start saying "Woe is me" when things go bad, Adam Gase. You know, <laughs> you 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 kind of suck it up and tough it out, as John Cougar Mellencamp once said. I, I'm I'm being wise in Heimer, but I'm being serious too. I think that's part of it. You're right. The us, the, the us against the world mentality is part of it, but it's also part of building a program. And once you're in a place for 10 years, you start building a culture and building a program. And Kevin Willard has done that. And I think that's what they bought into. Yes, the social media is part of it, but also it's also part of, of, you know what, we are going to do this. And I, I do think Kevin harps on this a lot, but he's right. It helped that finally they had – you know, with obviously the Rutgers game as an interruption and, and a terrible interruption, but they did have 10 days of, of being back on campus mostly, of finally not not being on the road all the time and being able to prepare in the uh, the dungeon underneath Walsh. So so you, you mentioned the four straight tournament appearances, and at the beginning of the season, I believe everyone just assumed the fifth one was a given. But at this point, I personally believe that the resume still needs some work to earn that NCAA bid at this time. What's, oh, the, no most, what's the most logical path for the Pirates to take to get to that fifth straight tournament appearance? Well, I think at least, I, I think go at least 10 and 8. I mean, first of all, but I will say this. First of all, the, the, for those listeners that uh, before video games uh, or have taken a break from video games and played some Scrabble, I mean, this was at least like a double word score. 
the Maryland game. Okay, it wasn't on the road or neutral, but still, it was accomplished without the top two scores against a very good team. Okay, it was on the Pirates' home court, but it was that that win counts volumes. And also, think of this: if those two guys do come through this healthy and are back, you know, everyone hopes obviously in March the committee will take that into account that they're healthy and available. So that makes a difference too. That that changes the perception. Uh, with all that in mind, I think nine and nine is possible. But to be safe, you certainly want to be on the. It'd be better to be on the the plus side of the uh, equation, ten and eight, and to and for to be the right ten and eight. But with the way the Big East is this year, it shouldn't be hard because to get to ten and eight, you're going to have to. You're almost going to have to have some good wins. You're not going to be beating up on a bunch of uh, slappies. Well, that's the and problem then, with the Big East is normally we cannibalize ourselves and, and beat the hell true. out of each other. And going into that finals, uh, final weekend, we're worried about who's getting in. So now let's assume true. that Powell and Sandra are actually out for an extended period. If you were in Willard's shoes, what approach would you take on the court to try to remain competitive and put a couple of wins together in the meantime? Well, like, you know, in these grinded out games, I mean, he did the right thing against Maryland. I know this is raw meat, but I'm being on raw meat for some of the fans. And I know, I know he'll never do it, but I'm just being honest. Uh, I think there are games against high powered offenses where, as, and I wrote this on, on, on the rival site. I do think he should uh, break that emergency glass and uh, utilize Torian Thompson if there's an, like an offensive game where he needs to match points. I don't think he will. I think he's going to try to grind out games with defense, but I don't know if that's always going to work. We've been, we've been, like we've been saying that for weeks. Yeah, I kind of feel like you beat me to my next question. It's like the, the Maryland game was no Picasso on the offensive side of the floor. We score 48 points against Rutgers, and everyone's crying bloody murder. We score 52 against Maryland, but because we win, everybody feels great about themselves. We still need to find a way to put the ball in the basket, and that, that kind of manifested itself again against Prairie View in the first half. I mean, where does this team – find the offense. Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like this isn't the NBA. You can't sign somebody to a 10-day contract. I mean, Torian Thompson is he is still in South Orange. He's still on campus, whether some people like it or not. And I know it's embarrassing what his recruitment led to. I get that. And I get that his defense is terrible. I understand that. But you know what, if he can help Seton Hall win a game or two on offense, I don't understand why you wouldn't try to do that. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen. But to me, I feel like there could be a game or two down the road. I mean, he almost he almost pulled that DePaul road game out of the fire last year with his offense. That's just me. I feel like he could could help, but it's unfortunate. I just don't see that he'll get that chance, and I just – I'm kind of at a loss to, you know, to, to, to understand why. It's intriguing to say the least. I think we'd all like to have seen in the Rutgers game when nothing else was going right, why not experiment for four or five minutes? However, exactly. That's the word experiment. Yeah, experiment. Just give it a try. JP, you said that 10 and eight would, uh, would get the Seton Hall Pirates into the uh, NCAA tournament. We're going to put you on the spot. What's your prediction for the season? Well, Again, it's all, I mean, it's all dependent on how quickly Powell, Powell gets back. Uh, if, if he gets back with a reasonable amount of time, say, m- mid-January, um, 
12 and 6 or something like that is still very much on the table, even in this tough Big East. If he doesn't, with, with the offense we're seeing, especially in the, against Maryland in the first half against Prairie View A&M, then, I mean, the floor could be – honestly, the floor could be 7 and 11. I mean, I really mean that. And I think I say that, but, but really, I mean, where's the offense coming from? So it, it could be a wide variance. I mean, I might go somewhere in the middle and say – Really, it could be uh, nine and nine. Well, JP, as always, we really appreciate you coming on. You're a friend to the podcast, and we really enjoy having you here. Thank you very much. It's always fun to come on with you guys. Thank you so much. Happy, Happy holidays, holidays, JP. Yep. You too. Okay, Mike. So we've got about six or seven days as of this recording till we end up in Chicago to play DePaul for the opening of the Big East season. We have a special behind enemy lines scheduled for the end of this week. Mike, I'm excited, man. This is this is where the rubber meets the road, man. Yeah, there's still a lot of potential for the season. It's really going to play itself out over the next you know, month or so. Hopefully we get miles back sooner than later. Hopefully we don't put ourselves behind the eight ball with a early slate with four out of six game road in the big East conference. And we'll be you know, raring to go on the back end. I really am excited still. Well, as we wrap up this podcast, we want to wish all the folks that listen to us a very Merry Christmas. And we look forward to the big East schedule. Go Pirates! So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 